I should ask this before we start recording, but am I allowed to say fuck? I think we're going to have you explicitly. I don't think there's any helping it. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> That's good. I have an episode planned to, like, extremely ruin Oliver's life that will definitely include the word fuck. So we might as well just give up now. Just tag it with the explicit life. We'll be done with it. Yeah. Given some of the hints that I have gotten about future stories, I, I'm not even going to try. <laughs> Welcome to Principal Instigators, a science podcast for the haters. My name is Oliver, and today, Sandra, Dan, and I are talking about open access, how it works, how it doesn't, and why it's such a fixation for the science community. Please, enjoy. Okay. So, uh, so. open access. Open access. Dan here with a few disclaimers. This was the first episode we ever recorded back in January 2023. So, my sound quality isn't great because I hadn't bought a real microphone yet. This is also why we didn't spend 15 minutes shitting on Elon Musk when we mentioned Twitter at the end, because, at the time of recording, Musk had not yet ruined Twitter the way he has now. He can still go to hell, though. Finally, we will explore this more in the episode, but I want to make clear at the outset that it is the authors that pay for open access fees. Now, back to the show. What does open access mean? So here's the fucking thing about open access. To a lot of people, open access sounds great. Because let's say that you are a high school student and you're really interested in turtles and you've read every single book, textbook in your local library, in your school library about turtles, and you're so into it that you want to read the latest peer-reviewed literature on turtles. Typically, The way that this would work is that if you wanted to access a peer-reviewed article about turtles and you didn't have access to a university library that had a subscription, you would have to pay money. So it might be around $10 to quote-unquote rent a PDF, and it might be quite a bit more than that if you wanted to be able to keep that PDF forever. And people have also made arguments about rare diseases or even diseases that aren't particularly rare. Doctors are not scientists, and a lot of the time you will talk to two or three different doctors that will all have different opinions about what's going on. Oliver, what have I done? Is it the doctors and not scientists? (laughs) We'll get into my issues with doctors. They know what they did. (laughs) Actually, they don't know what they did, and that's the problem. If you have pretty much any kind of medical condition, maybe you can't afford to go to the doctor. Maybe you can go to the doctor and the doctor was terrible to you. If you belong to any kind of minoritized community, your concerns may well be dismissed by the medical establishment. Maybe you can't afford to go to the doctor in the first place. Maybe you're getting all these conflicting opinions. And even if none of that is the case, you still might want to access the latest peer-reviewed research on the condition that you have, or on the condition that you might have. And of course, if you have to pay around $10 just to quote-unquote rent a PDF and you have access to that PDF for 48 hours or 72 hours, that can be a real impediment to people who are already having a difficult time and who are trying to improve their circumstances by learning about the relevant science. So that's a huge argument for open access. It's a real bummer when your two options for looking at medical stuff are pay a bunch of money to quote unquote rent a PDF, as stupid as that sounds, or 
have a WebMD tell you you're going to die of cancer tomorrow. Well, I mean, the third option is to pay a bunch of money to have a doctor dismiss your symptoms and concerns. This has been a bugbear of the scientific community for a while now. Certainly in the internet age, it becomes possible to actually have open access because before that, you had to get all of your papers as physical copies. I remember when I was an undergrad and when I was a grad student, the astronomy library, both at my undergraduate and my graduate institutions, and they were just full of these back issues of monthly notices of the Royal Astronomical Society and other journals. And that was just how you got to read papers. It was how you got to see what was going on in your scientific field back then. But then with the advent of the internet, you can find stuff online. And then suddenly everybody can find stuff online. And now maybe everybody can access all of that. (laughs) But maybe not. Because it turns out it costs money both to do science and to publish science. I think that's kind of an underappreciated point in a lot of discussions about open access. A lot of what you might call the advocacy or activism that relates to open access is done by younger people. And generally, that's who's doing activism. I certainly don't think that that's a bad thing. But when you're first starting out in science and you haven't published a paper yet or you've published two papers, obviously your perspective is valid in that you are a member of the scientific community. But you really have to publish enough papers that a bunch of things will have gone wrong during the publication process before you can get to the point where you fully appreciate just how much work is done behind the scenes. Typesetting proofreading, those are very obvious services that a publisher provides that most scientists would do a terrible job of that if left to their own devices. But even the number of editors and administrators who will look over an article many times between when it's accepted and when it's published, those people are doing a job and they deserve a salary. And that's not to say that all of the money that gets paid either by institutions for library subscriptions or by people who are paying to access articles. That's not to say that all of that money goes to those people who are doing the work. A lot of it goes to shareholders who presumably are paying to maintain the cave where they torture puppies and orphans. But nevertheless, even if you do trim the fat and if you do get rid of the money that's being essentially doled out as passive income to people who already have a lot of money, you still do at the end of the day have quite a few costs associated with publishing an article. Right. And those costs have to be borne by somebody. For some context, the profit margin on a published paper is fairly obscure, but there was a breakdown in a nature paper. So you know that this is maybe not the most reliable source. But for sort of the top tier publishers, the estimates are that they make 40 to 50% profit per paper. But of course, none of them provide that financial information publicly. Generally, for commercial publishing, the mean profit margin is 35%. If you go to a university press, that drops to 25%. For a society publisher, that can go down to roughly 20-ish percent. Still pretty healthy profit margins. (laughs) There is work that has to be done editing, typesetting. Oh my god. I do agree with Oliver that the profit margins for these publishers are worth keeping in mind. But the fact remains that if someone needs to pay the typesetters, someone needs to pay the proofreaders, someone needs to pay many members of the editorial staff. And to me, this is something that the open access movement, with the exception of a few individuals, this is something that I think that the open access movement has failed to fully reckon with. Someone needs to pay. And whether you have universities and other institutions paying subscription fees or whether you have authors 
paying that cost so that their work can be made available to anyone. When you're charging people, it is damn near impossible to do that equitably. And so there's always going to be biases and other forms of injustice that are going to be perpetuated when you're when you're charging people through the scientific publishing process. And especially in the system that we have now, where costs can range from $0 for a preprint server or from some journals that make a point to charge $0 for publishing, all the way up to tens of thousands of dollars for <clears throat> certain journals. The costs can go into thousands of dollars, and that's for the scientists submitting the paper to be published. And there's correlation there between the cost to publish in a journal and the prestige of the journal, if you want to look at impact factor, which I think goes back to some of the profit margins that some of the more highly reputed journals are able to generate. But people have and do argue that that is because those higher impact journals pay their editors better, which means you get better editing, which means that the papers are themselves better. I'm not sure that I personally believe that, but <laughs> that is part of the debate about publishing costs in academia right now is what exactly are you paying for? Is it really worth it? And how else are you going to support these publications? There's sort of like a fundamental question going on underneath. Of what is the point of publishing? Who is it for? What's the value? We talked earlier about what these costs should be borne by somebody. I think it's an important question to sort of tease out, like, well, who should be paying these costs? And part of answering that question, I think, requires answering the question of who is science for? Yes. Who is science for? Is it for the scientists? Is it for the people? Should we start writing it in, like, the Constitution? Is it for nobody? Is it just for fun? Like, who is it for? I'm sure if you talked to a defense contractor, they would say, science is for money, but... I don't think that that's true. Stepping back from publishing, when you think about who funds science, a lot of time the money for scientists comes from taxpayers. It's NSF grants. It's government grants. The public is paying for it. And I, if pressed, I think I would say that's probably a good thing. I think my personal answer to the question of who is science for, science, for, science is for the people. Because the more that discoveries get made, we push the boundaries of what is possible and what is known is good for us all. Knowing that somebody is out there trying to learn more and push the boundaries makes me feel good inside. And knowing that somebody will hopefully maybe put it into good use for the betterment of humanity is sort of what I would hope that science is doing. Now, this is where I get to put on my IP law sicko hat and describe some stuff that I do for a living. The comparable situation is I'm thinking of the Bayh-Dole Act puts a bunch of restrictions on people who receive government grants when they want to go get patents on their work that has been funded by government money, which gives the government a bunch of rights that they are too chicken shit to use when people try to use their government-granted monopoly to engage in rent-seeking behavior. The biggest one of which is called march-in rights, which is when some group, whether that's a drug company or a university or whoever has applied for a patent on something that they got government money to do research on and invent, the government has the power if they determine that it actually is necessary because the patentee has chosen not to license their invention at reasonable rates. The government can step in, hence march in rights, and issue licenses to the patented invention, even over the objections of the private party who owns the patent. The government has never used these rights. 
Not once. They're too chicken shit to do it because no company would probably want to take government money, again, if they're worried that the government might actually undo the monopoly that they've been granted. But I would argue that that defeats the entire purpose of putting march in rights in place. Why put this in here if you're never going to use it, one? And then two, the whole point of this is to get people to license things at reasonable rates and make these things available to everybody. If companies are not going to license their patents and not let people use their stuff, then what are we doing here? Putting aside the fact that government scientists should be named as inventors. The Moderna vaccine is subject to the Bayh-Dole Act, and the government, if it wasn't a bunch of cowards, could invoke its marching rights and force Moderna to license the vaccine, sell the vaccine at a lower price. The government will never do this because they are changed. But they should. I grew up on the crime side, the New York Times side. Staying alive was no job. Had second hands. Moms bounced on old men. So then we moved to Shallon Land. A young youth, you're rocking the gold tooth. Low goose, only way I begin to G York was drug loot. And let's start it like this, son. Yeah, I think that there's an analogy to be drawn between the idea that the government should be using its powers under the Bayh-Dole Act to allow the Moderna vaccine to be produced at a lower price and a significantly lower cost to the actual people getting the shot, if not, you know, free. There's an analogy to be drawn between that contradiction and a lot of the contradictions inside of science because as sandra said earlier science wants to be free is a uh, a thing a lot of people say and a lot of people will tell you they believe but i don't think a lot of people actually believe it right because if you look at how people actually behave not just editors at big papers like nature or I don't just want to pick on nature, but that's the one that comes to my head all the time. But if you look beyond that, right, you look at what actual scientists do and how they act, they see the rise of preprints and preprint servers in some fields as a threat. And like the beauty of open access is that it increases access. But the problem with that is that it also means that you have more access. Right. And if we go back to COVID as uh, our example, right, at the beginning of the pandemic, there were some 20,000, I think, is like the rough estimate of the number of papers on COVID that were put up on MedArchive and like other preprint servers within the first couple of months. And some of that was good. Some of that was junk, but it was a huge volume and anybody could find anything in those preprint servers. One person said that COVID was uncannily similar to HIV. This was on a preprint that was put on MedArchive. It was later retracted, but it was up there for a bit. And because this was public, a bunch of people saw this and thought, oh, well, clearly this means this was like bioengineered. Science may want to be free, but scientists don't necessarily want that, right? There is kind of this feeling that maybe anyone can read a paper, but not anybody should read a paper, right? And if you haven't put in the time to do all the coursework, do all the learning, understand all of this background material, then it's not only useless for you to read my paper on, I don't know, loop quantum gravity, right? It's actively bad because it's going to make you think things that you're going to put in an email to me 
And then I have to send it to my crank folder in my academic email. And there's this tension there, right? And I think there's not necessarily a good way to resolve that tension. But what ends up happening is people sort of ignore it and they say science wants to be free. And they just sort of leave it at that. They have this platitude that conforms with their sort of ideology, but doesn't really address the underlying conflict. And in that way, there are a lot of similarities between science and thinking about science and liberal ideology. (laughs) But like, I am very happy to talk about how this all comes back to how science is actually a social activity and the science you do reflects the society that you live in and (laughs) how... how how Latour was right and should never have recanted any of what he said but (laughs) but that's you know that's a different podcast for a different day (laughs) I think also as well like talking about science should be free skips over the fact that like scientists are human and also they're subject to all of the same vices and temptations that everyone and everybody is if you can take your science and use it to make some money, people are going to do that. That's why you see plenty of professors of all stripes founding companies based on their research and doing stuff. Instead of just focusing on the science for the benefit of people, you know, saying like, hey, this is a great way I can make a lot of money and live a very comfortable life based off of this work that I've done. And I can use all these systems and structures to make sure I can extract as much value as possible from the work that I've done, even if it means rent-seeking behavior. To not necessarily play devil's advocate, as I said, I'm not a biomedical person. However, my understanding is that a lot of the potential therapies that people find through the course of their scientific research are the sorts of things that existing biomedical companies would not develop because it wouldn't work out for them most likely in the profit margin sense. And we don't have great government infrastructure for public development of potential therapies. And so there are plenty of people who work on rare diseases or perhaps on different therapeutic approaches to less rare diseases who over the course of their research realized that the only way for them to use their research to help people would be to found their own company. And then they can't get any investment into their company unless they file for patents. I'm not saying that this is a great system, but I think it's understandable for people who never saw themselves getting involved in business or entrepreneurship who eventually realized that the only way that their research could help people would be to found a company. I think that it's understandable for them to do that. And of course, we should have much more public infrastructure for developing different therapies that Merck would not be interested in developing. And I mean, also, in my opinion, we should have government infrastructure for developing the sorts of therapies that Merck would be willing to fund. Absolutely. And I also do think that that's potentially a criticism of the open access movement. I think that, and and of course, this is a movement, and I'm sure that any general statement that I make would be unfair in the sense that it wouldn't apply to absolutely everyone. But the open access movement has largely been focused on scientific papers and data being free to access and not so much the end products. I would argue, and I suppose I'm biased here, but I would argue that, sure, in many ways, I do love the idea of anyone being able to access any peer-reviewed article. But if people could purchase medications at cost, 
that were developed thanks to recent biomedical innovations. That to me is a much more important and powerful idea of what you might call open science. Science is a human activity that is reflective of the society in which it is done. Yeah, I think that's a really good point that certainly the conversations that I've participated in and conversations that I've heard or seen about open access don't address, right? People talk about open access as spreading the knowledge that we get from science, but they don't take it that step further and think about what are the actual downstream products of that science. And I think part of the reason I haven't seen many of those conversations is because as a theoretical astrophysicist, those downstream products tend not to exist as much. <laughs> but I think there's also maybe something to be said for the general allergy that a lot of scientists seem to have to engaging more broadly with the political implications and circumstances of their work and the interplay of what they're doing with the political and social system in which they do it and what the responsibilities of each are to the other. And I mean, saying I just, I want my paper to be available to everyone is an easy way to sort of on the surface reconcile those things, but it doesn't necessarily get you to a resolution of the deeper relationship there. That's something that's been on my mind for a long time when thinking about the open access movement, because there's all kinds of advocacy that you can do within science that is going to piss people off, especially the people with power over you. Don't ask me how I know this. And the thing about open access and making papers free to read is that I'm not aware of anyone, no matter how powerful and uncreative they are, I'm not aware of anyone who truly is in favor of a world in which you can access a peer-reviewed paper only if you have a library login from an institution that has a subscription or you're willing to pay money to the publisher directly. I don't know of anyone who's in favor of that. And so if you want to brand yourself as a maverick and a brave truth teller, but you don't want to really experience consequences for that, saying that major funding agencies need to take complaints of racism more seriously is not how you do that, right? The way you do that is by advocating for open access for two reasons. One, there really isn't opposition to open access in the way that there's opposition to a lot of other things that young scientists tend to advocate for. And two, because it is this kind of fundamentally unresolvable problem due to the fact that publishing a peer-reviewed paper costs money and there's no way to charge that money without reinforcing existing biases. You can just spend your entire career continuing to agitate and agitate and agitate, but you're not going to piss anyone off. There's a lot that I really respect about the open access movement, but in many ways, it is a myopic circle jerk. Science is extremely lib. <laughs> All I could think of when you were talking about it, I'm like, this is exactly the same as some random white lib putting up a Black Lives Matter flag back during George Floyd and then immediately forgetting about it. To be perfectly fair. My position is still open access is actually good. I am pro open access and the more of that there is, the better. It's not a totally empty signifier, but it is 
relatively speaking, an easy thing, an easy thing to do, an easy thing to adopt as your project. And I, yeah, I think it is very useful to keep in mind that there is always more potentially or further, there are more useful, more relevant things that we could be thinking about or that we could be agitating for. For me, one of the big issues with the open access movement as it currently exists and it has existed for maybe the past 10 years is that it seems like they're advocating for less and less important stuff as time goes on because they haven't solved the issue of, you know, how do we make all peer-reviewed papers free to read? And that's not necessarily their fault, but instead of continuing to focus on that issue and on very similar issues such as making the data sets that underlie peer-reviewed papers publicly available, instead it seems like certain people, but a bunch of people within the open access movement are broadening and broadening and broadening their definition of what open access means or just openness means so that there's always something new that they can be advocating for while we still have this problem of open access not being anywhere close to a universal reality. So if I may, (laughs) Oliver pretty directly alluded to this earlier you have the most prestigious journals charging absurd amounts of money for papers that are published there to be open access. I think Nature, Oliver's favorite journal, for a very long time, there was no open access option at all. And recently, they finally said what the cost would be for an article to be open access in Nature, and it's over 9,000 British pounds. So it's like $5,000. No, it's more. <laughs> Yeah, it's more money. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. (laughs) That's a joke at the expense of the UK. (laughs) We can make those jokes about Australia. Something that's like 9,000 Australian dollars is going to be like 30 American dollars, but something that's 9,000 British pounds is going to be over 10,000 American dollars, I think. Currently, it's around 11,000. I was just joking about their economy collapsing (laughs) last autumn. This is what happens when you let the Tories run the government for too long. Uh, so, I mean, that's a reasonable amount of money to pay, right? Oliver, of course you think that. You love nature. That is seen as a lot of money. And <laughs> even before nature announced this, that, you know, it'd be 11,000 US dollars, 11,000 real dollars to publish your article open access in nature. Long before that, they already had nature communications for years and years, which I think it's around 6,000 dollars in US currency, something like that. And the reason why I'm mentioning this is that obviously it's absurd that there's some journals that will charge well under $2,000 to publish an article open access, right? So when they're charging, that's the money that the authors would pay so that the article is freely available. So you have some journals where the authors have to pay $2,000 or less for the article to be open access. And then you have other journals where the authors have to pay $6,000, if not $11,000 for the article to be open access. And many people in the open access movement very rightly realized that prestige publishing is at odds with continuing expansion of the open access movement. The fact that Nature Communications has existed for so long and you have to pay so many thousands of dollars to publish there, when that same publisher has plenty of other open access journals that aren't really worse than Nature Communications that cost way less, you cannot argue that you're creating a more fair world with open access 
when people at wealthy institutions pay their $6,000 and they get to publish in Nature Communications, whereas people at less wealthy institutions who are doing science that is just as good, if not better, they are publishing in PLOS One, which costs just a fraction of what Nature Communications charges. And PLOS One is considered to be a far less prestigious journal. And the perceived prestige of a journal in which you publish will impact the extent to which your article is cited. So essentially, we are providing people at very wealthy institutions with yet another advantage in this already unfair system. For this reason, and for many other reasons, prestige journals, glam journals, tabloid journals are bad. And therefore, it does make sense for people in the open access movement to advocate not just for open access, but also for a rethinking of how we evaluate journals and how we evaluate researchers. All magazines scheming the pictures, scheming the pictures. Juicy couture, teasing the fellas alone. Pretty at Coachella, the weather never changes ahead. have advocated for that I think is very reasonable is instead of evaluating the prestige of a journal where you publish your article, which is usually done via, you know, citation counts, instead, we should be focusing more on the number of times that your particular article has been cited. Journals are ranked by something that is called the impact factor, which is simply a reflection of citations. So the more prestigious journals, articles in those journals get cited more. And in Europe, for example, it's very common if you're applying for a job, if you're applying to become a professor on your CV, you will list the impact factor of the journal in which each of your articles was published. Ideally, we wouldn't be trying to put numbers on these articles in such a simplistic way, if at all. But if we must do that, we should be looking at the citations for individual articles rather than the journals in which they were published. To me, that is reasonable. But people in the open access movement have gone quite a bit farther than that in advocating for a different world in which we evaluate scientists in a more inclusive and holistic way. Well, that sounds unobjectionable. All right, Oliver. Well, in that case, let me provide you with some quotes for you to not object to. The <laughs> I love not objecting to things. Well, get ready to object less than you ever had before. The <laughs> Scholarly Publishing and Academic Resources Coalition published a report entitled Better Ways to Evaluate Research and Researchers. This sounds pretty unobjectionable so far, right? After all, the impact factor is pretty absurd and corrupting. Their acronym is SPARK? Yeah, it's pretty good. Pretty good. This is great. This is a great. I have nothing to object to so far. That's like Congress level acronyming. It's pretty good. Someday I'll share with you the astronomy acronym page and we can have a good laugh. (laughs) There is this term that has become popular, altmetrics, and that it would be alternative metrics. So alternative ways for evaluating researchers. So far, so good. Here is a quote from the beautiful people at Spark. The Altmetrics Manifesto envisages no single replacement 
for any of the metrics presently in use, but instead a palette of different metrics laid out together. Administrators are invited to consider all of them in concert. For example, in evaluating a researcher for tenure, one might consider H-index, which is essentially the impact factor for individuals, impact factors are for journals. One might consider H-index alongside other metrics, such as number of trials registered, number of manuscripts handled as an editor, number of peer reviews submitted, invited conference presentations, total hit count of posts on academic blogs, number of Twitter followers and Facebook Uh, friends. Stop. I object. Uh I object. (laughs) It sounded from your tone like there was more. No, I was I was at the end before I was so rudely objected, rudely interrupted. So that's where it ends. And so uh, I have a few things to say. One is that uh, invited conference presentations absolutely are already considered by tenure committees. So let's talk about the other things that were mentioned by Smart. I was going to say, almost all of that seems pretty correlated with the exception of, I can't believe I'm going to say this, Facebook friends and Twitter followers. (laughs) What happened to that no comrades under 1000 movement? Somehow it passed me by. All right. So. uh... Oh, my God. Oh my god. So while Oliver... Those aren't serious, right? Those are like sort of hypothetical thought experiment-y. This is not a real proposal, but this is kind of in the vein of what we're thinking, right? I don't get those vibes. This is... I don't know if the term is white paper or what, but this is a report that was put online by people with a much better acronym than anything I'll ever be able to come up with. I mean, it sounds like an extremely white paper. (laughs) <laughs> we need we need a producer to add the little drum. <laughs> we'll do that in post. Yeah. Perver- I just can't even mention the perverse incentives going on there. This was published a couple of years ago, five years ago-ish. And if we want to take this seriously, which I think we should, because we already laughed at it, we can do like a sandwich. You know how you can give feedback as a sandwich? We can laugh at them, then take them seriously and laugh at them again. And so we're on step two right now, I think. So they say that instead of the metrics that are currently in use, which would be the metrics that were in use a couple of years ago, it's worth considering the H-index. As I said, the H-index is kind of like the equivalent of an impact factor for a person. It's essentially the maximum number H for which you have at least H papers that have been cited H times. So if it is the case that you have four papers that have each been cited four times, but you do not have five papers that have each been cited five times, then your H index would be four. The H index is something that's already in use quite a bit. So I don't really feel like that would, we would be changing anything. Isn't that just replicating the same problem again? I mean, impact factor is just the number, it's just measuring the number of times a certain journal gets cited. Well, each index is just numbering the number of times a person gets cited, which is just reinforcing the same structure. The people at the richest institutions, the people with the most money, they get cited the most because they can just put their stuff out there as widely as possible. Going back to the example of nature communications versus plus one, if you can afford to publish a nature communications worthy paper in nature communications, and you have a peer who is also in the same situation of having a nature communications worthy paper, but they can only afford to publish it in plus one, 
you're going to be at an advantage against your peer. Your paper will be cited more than theirs. Out of fairness to the H-Index, I believe that it was originally proposed as an alternative to just counting the number of papers that someone had published. So the issue with simply counting the number of papers that someone had published is that you can publish absolute garbage, or you can just publish the same thing five times with slightly different titles. And that's a way that you can increase the number of papers that you have. But presumably, if you publish the same thing five times, it's only going to be the first one or the one that's in the highest impact journal that gets cited repeatedly. And so in that sense, the H-Index can be seen as an improvement over the status quo out of which it originated. But I absolutely agree that it's really not that much better than the impact factor. But if we move on to the even more fun stuff, and we could take these in order. Other things- Can we not? <laughs> <laughs> Oliver, this podcast is just us recording me making you sad and you know it. <laughs> so number of trials registered. The only way that the number of trials registered is going to exceed the corresponding number of papers if you register a bunch of trials that don't go anywhere, you know, aside from the fact that there would be a lag between registering trials and publishing papers. Well, wait, 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 wait. If you register a bunch of trials that don't end up in publications, presumably those are trials with negative results, which is good. We want negative results, right? That's the whole... uh... I can't. I can't. I'm sorry. I can't. (laughs) I tried. Let the hate flow through you, Oliver. Okay, so Oliver is, well, he's moaning in pain. I do want to say that Oliver is pointing out a very real issue, which is that in the system that we currently have, people who run a study and end up not really finding anything very interesting will often shelve the study. And that is bad for a couple of reasons. And so if the incentives did not change and we rewarded people for the number of trials that they registered, then that might be a good thing. But of course, once we start rewarding people for the number of trials that they register, we would essentially be incentivizing people to register spam. Next on this list. Anyway. Number of manuscripts handled as an editor. What this is referring to is that when a, when a paper is submitted to a journal to be peer-reviewed, there is going to be an editor who essentially guides the manuscript along. That's going to be the person who selects the potential reviewers, emails the potential reviewers. So here we have the exact same problem where handling manuscripts as an editor, that is a public service that isn't really rewarded right now. But if we started prioritizing it more than we currently do when we're evaluating people for tenure or when we're evaluating scientists more generally... That is going to give people an incentive to handle as many manuscripts as they can, and then they might end up doing a bad job. For example, not thoroughly reading the reviews before making a decision on a manuscript in terms of whether it should be rejected or accepted, or the author should have the opportunity to make revisions, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I'm a little less opposed to this one. I think like the number of editorships is not really going to exceed <coughs> the number of papers submitted. Uh, so I think having something that rewards people for doing public service that way seems good. I think like, I understand there are negative possible downstream consequences, but it's acting as an editor on our paper is like relatively less common than being a peer reviewer or writing your own paper. Like those seem a little more second order. So I like this one. I'm not as upset about. Also mentioned in the paragraph that I read is number of peer reviews submitted. I have a colleague who once bragged on Facebook about having completed 
two peer reviews in, I think it was the space of one hour. That's malpractice. (laughs) There is (laughs) tremendous variability in how much effort reviewers put in when they are reviewing an article. I'm guessing that if we made some kind of effort to get people to do a better job instead of just writing, you know, the two sentence, yeah, sure, this paper looks fine. I'm guessing that any efforts that we made might backfire. But certainly, if we started prioritizing this more, that could have the sorts of consequences of more and more people finishing two reviews in one hour. My understanding is that a lot of professors will be required to review a certain number of papers per year as part of how they're evaluated, and they don't really get any bonus for going above. So if they're required to review two papers per year and they instead review 20, they don't get any bonus for that. But if we give people a bonus for each additional paper that they review as a peer reviewer, that would just incentivize people to say yes to every single invitation to review a paper. And then they would spend 30 minutes, if that, on each one. Yeah, that's bad. All right. That's not a review. We cannot conclude our discussion of this paragraph without talking about the last part, which is Uh. that when people uh, go up for tenure and their academic performance is reviewed, what should also be taken into account, and I'll repeat this, number of Twitter followers and Facebook friends. As we all know, science definitely needs more posters. There are not enough true posters in science. I can't. I can't actually. My brain is not going to let me engage with this in any manner other than like purely facetious because that's my defense mechanism. That's called self-care. This is too absurd to contemplate seriously. This is Oliver's new resolution. So there's this saying, never post feet for free. And I have never posted feet for free. I would absolutely prefer that over gaining a ton of followers on Twitter by cheerfully retweeting the bullshit that my colleagues here in the United States publish on a regular basis. God, I'm only imagining the kind of thing. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm just imagining the economy of how this would like just make it fans and suddenly you'll be a regular, suddenly you'll be tenure. It's just suddenly literal perverse incentives. If you, or the chili pepper on Rate My Prof becomes a link that takes you to the... Ah! <laughs> oh. oh my god. So, I mean, all right. Uh, trying to recover from mild psychic damage. We've killed all, we've hurt Oliver deeply. Oh, this is just the beginning. That was the, that was the genesis. That was the entire concept of this podcast. <laughs> as far as I'm aware. I got into this knowingly. But yeah, I don't know. I think open access good, but also open access is kind of an easy, like my take is open access is an easy way to feel good about science and to feel good about doing things that reconcile some of the conflicts inherent in doing science in our society without actually addressing them. But so that doesn't mean that open access is itself bad. And I think letting people see at least the 
the papers that come out of your work is a good thing. And my other conclusion is, please don't make me show feet for tenure. <laughs> <laughs> R.I.P. Oliver's privacy. <laughs> <laughs>